Hi, this is Dave Olson. I'm the senior leader of Heartland Church located in Ankeny, Iowa. I hope the following message challenges, encourages, and ultimately changes you. Thanks for joining us. We are in a series on foundations, and we're using Hebrews chapter 6, and we're looking at the two first, or the second two planks, rather, of the foundation. The first two are repentance from acts that lead to death and faith in God. Those are, that's a pair of foundational truths. Then we have the instructions in baptisms and the laying on of hands. That's what we're talking about now. We're still drilling down on instructions on baptisms. God willing, if we can make it, we'll talk about uh, laying on of hands next week, or we might have to wait till the next, the week after that. We've got to take the whole service then. With baptism, we'll go to another week. But then, finally, we'll wrap this series up with the, the concept of uh, resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. Those are foundational truths. And so we need to make sure that we have a firm grasp of these, but not just an understanding, but a practical application so it's showing up in our life. We don't want to be theologically educated, but uh, uh, practically anemic. Uh, we don't want to be, you know, not, not, those things aren't showing up in our life. And so I want to encourage you. Look at, uh, look at verse 10, and crowds asked, this is speaking of John the baptizer, what then shall we do? He answered them, whosoever has two tunics should share it with one who has none. Uh, it is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more taxes than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusations, and be content with your wages. And so they were talking to John, and they were wanting to be baptized. They were saying, hey, we, we're, we're in. We want, we want to go through this, this ceremony. And he said, whoa, 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 wait a minute. We don't baptize people into repentance unless there's the fruit of repentance in your life. And this is key in understanding baptism. Because in this passage, John made this statement. He said, the word, he said, the, the one who anoints me, so to speak. He said, the one, who, the one who called me, the one who came upon me, told me I would recognize the Messiah by the Spirit coming on him and remaining. And he would be the one who comes after me. I'm not worthy to untie his shoes. And what I do with water, he will do with the Holy Ghost and fire. And so this is the first time we see this concept of the baptism in the Holy Spirit. This was a phrase that John the Baptist coined. And so we've talked about water baptism. I would propose to you, water baptism is the earthly baptism that God responds to. And it's more than mere symbolism. It's a prophetic act that can initiate things in our life, but it's something that we step into. It's the earthly baptism. But there's also a heavenly baptism that Jesus initiates. We can posture ourselves to receive, but Jesus is the baptizer in the Holy Spirit. And that's what John said. And so when John introduces this concept of a baptism in the Spirit, that phrase is picked up throughout the Scriptures. So it wasn't something that John just picked out willy-nilly. That was inspired by the Spirit of God. And in so doing, what John did is he eternally connected the concept of spirit baptism to water baptism. He both connected it and contrasted it at the same time. He said they're both baptisms, so they're connected. But he also contrasted it by saying, 
what I do with water, Jesus is going to initiate another baptism, and it'll be the baptism of the Holy Ghost and fire. And in order for us to understand spirit baptism, we have to have an understanding of water baptism. And so what is water baptism? In Scripture, literally the Greek word that we translate baptism is baptizo. It literally means to cause to be immersed. It was used of the dyeing of cloth. If you're going to dye cloth, you had to baptizo it. You had to submerge it. Interestingly enough, the first time we see this word in ancient Grecian literature, it was actually a word found in a pickle recipe. That you would take a cucumber and you would baptizo it in the pickling solution and you would leave it there for a while. And when you take it out of the solution, it could never go back to cucumberdom. It was now part of pickledom. It was a pickle. It had been fundamentally changed. And so John picks up on this phrase and he says, what I do with water, I immerse you and you come up soaked, saturated and dripping. It wasn't a little sprinkle on the head or a little little cross mark on the forehead. It was an immersion because it was a watery grave. Now we talked about that. I'm going to be careful. I'm not going to slide back into the last message and re-preach it to you. But if you're unclear on this, I want you to go back to, not last week because we were all home, but go back to the week before and look at the message about water, what water baptism really is. And so there's this, this line in the sand that we're saying goodbye to the old life. And we're admitting, what I, I agree with heaven's assessment of my previous life, and I, I, want, a, a, I want a funeral. I want to put that old man under the watery grave, and I want to be free from him or her. And so that's what water baptism is. It's really, how many of you ever watched The Lord of the Rings? It's it's a great, we've been, we have this this tradition in the Olson family the last three years. We watch the whole thing during Christmas break. We watch the extended version. And we all huddle down in the, in the basement and watch that. And, and uh, we, and my wife, it's, it's interesting, my wife, you know, my wife, this sweet little lady, she'll look over me. I'm really interested to see what happens next. We've, we've watched it many times, but she's like, she can't wait to see all this blood and guts and battle. And, you know, it's my little warrior woman there, you know. And uh, there's this great scene that is so picturesque or illustrative of water baptism. And if you know the story, there's Erwin. She is a, uh, a some of you guys, you're a geek, Pastor. Well, I'm just, it's really good. There's, it's, it's saturated with all these uh, metaphors for the kingdom. And there's this gal, Erwin. She is a elven princess, and she rescues the protagonist, Frodo Baggins. And he's dying because he's been stabbed by the enemy, one of the ring wraiths. And so she's got him on her horse and they're riding and she, he's just a little midget with hairy feet. And he's, she's, she's getting away from these black hooded figures and she gets to the river. And then she turns back and she stops and she said, if you want him, come and get him. And they're hesitant to cross the waters. And as soon as they step foot in the waters, the waters rise and it washes them away. And it's a wonderful picture of the deliverance that is in baptism. The enemy loves to traffic in dry places. And water is always throughout scripture been symbolic of the Holy Spirit. 
And so even in John's baptism, it was a foreshadowing of what Jesus would do. So these two are internally connected. And John is saying, listen, pay attention. What I do, and I submerge you in water, and you come up saturated and soaked, Jesus will do with the third person of the Godhead, and you will come up saturated and dripping with the Spirit of God. That's what we're to expect. But John also contrasted those two things. He said, listen, what he's doing with water, or I'm doing it with water, he's going to do it with the Holy Ghost and fire. And so there's this contrast of what we're going to be immersed in. And so the biblical pattern, now we, we pointed out in Hebrews chapter 6, when it talks about the foundational teachings, he said, let us not lay again the foundations or the elementary teachings of repentance from acts that lead to death, faith in God, instructions in baptisms. He talks about multiple baptisms. But Paul in Ephesians 4 looks at it from a different perspective, and Paul says there's one faith, one Lord, one baptism. It's not that they're contradicting each other. That From a Pauline perspective, Paul is saying, listen, this is one act with two phases. You go down in the water and you come up in the Spirit. And Jesus is our great example who did the same. That there was a burial, a death burial, a resurrection, and then the resurrection power from on high comes upon us in the form of the Spirit so that we walk this thing out. Now, in this passage of Luke chapter 3, when Luke is telling us his teaching on the baptism of water and talking about Jesus coming and baptizing us in the Holy Ghost and fire, in this teaching, at the end of that passage, it says, and with many other words, John preached the good news to them. The Greek there is evangelion. With many other words, he preached the gospel to him, to them. So we need to understand, the baptism in the Holy Spirit is fundamental to the gospel. It's foundational to the Christian life. It's not some you know, optional add-on someday for special Christians. No, it's, Hebrews calls it elementary teachings, it's foundational teachings, and John said it's included in the good news. And so we don't, it, this is not optional. Even Jesus' own disciples who walked with him for three years and were taught face-to-face -face by the Son of God himself, Jesus said, listen, don't even think about ministry until you've received the promise of the Father. So how much more do you and I need the baptism in the Holy Spirit if the disciples needed it before they even thought about ministry? They had walked with Jesus, and we need to be empowered from on high. There's a theology of the Spirit. The pneumatology of the New Testament starts with John. And John understands one of the primary ways. To, he said, God told me that I would recognize the Messiah by the one on whom the Spirit comes and remains. To him, that was the primary fixture of the messianic calling. And he would be the one who is the baptizer in the Holy Ghost. Yes, John said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And we emphasize that. We, we tend to highlight that, the one who takes away the sin of the world. 
But we need to understand, we have a half gospel if we're preaching about being forgiven, but not empowered. We can be forgiven from sin, but still struggle with sin because it's by his spirit we put to death the misdeeds of the flesh, Paul said. See, the baptism in the Holy Spirit is not merely power to minister. There's a place for that, and we need it. We need the power of God to impart to others and to see things move in the spiritual and in the physical realm. We need the power of God to give it away. But even more foundational, we need the power of God indwelling us because it's by his spirit we put to death the misdeeds of the flesh. It's by his spirit that he sheds the love of God abroad in our hearts. It's so fundamental to the Christian life. And so in a very real sense, our water baptism is the burial and the goodbye to the old man. But we come up and we have no, we're not walking in the power of a new life. We've just said goodbye to the old life. Now we need to replace that old, that old uh, uh, motivation, that old uh, activation in our life. We need power from on high to come upon us, both inwardly for personal holiness and outwardly for the power of God. Now, we don't have time to get into it, but historical theology, you see, down through history, different movements emphasize one or the other. The holiness movement, starting with John uh, John Wesley, and that dude obviously operated in power. One of the tragedies of modern history, even Christian history, is that we see people writing about these great men of God, but they sanitize it. And they, they remove much of the spirit-filled, controversial stuff and then just talk about the results. And there was great revival and a lot of people's lives were changed. But between their impartation and other people being transformed was a whole lot of messy, spirit-filled ministry where people got knocked on their can and knocked out for days and, and sometimes literally days. And there would, the power of God would fall and... Uh, John, I, I believe it was uh, George Whitfield that criticized John Wesley, or it might have been the other way around, I don't remember. But one of them was criticizing the other, said, hey, you know, all this emotionalism in your services, because they would wave their hand and whole crowds of people would just fall out under the Spirit. And the other guy, they were friends initially, and, and they, they, both of them had huge ministries. One was a Calvinist, one was an Arminianist. And uh, he, so he was criticizing them, and he said, hey, I, I can't help it. I mean, it's, it's God. And the next meeting, it broke out in the other guy's meeting. So we saw tremendous moves of the Spirit. But the, the Wesleyan, Methodist Wesleyan uh, mindset was primarily holiness, power to live holy. And that came through the baptism of the Holy Spirit. They called it the second blessing. Then Pentecost, the, the modern Pentecostal movement, which actually came out of the holiness movement, we, they, there was two streams that came out of that because they recognized, oh, either they looked at it as a third blessing or they looked at the second blessing as the baptism and sanctification was progressive, okay? Let me, let me, let me dig down on this just for a moment. Okay, so there were, there were those who began to believe in a second blessing, and this is key. Because this church is a second blessing church. It really is. Because we believe there's something beyond salvation. We believe that there's something we receive from God after we've said yes to Jesus. That we say yes to the Spirit of God. 
When, we, when I just read about what, what John told the, the Pharisees and the Roman soldiers, remember what I just read? They came to him and said, hey, we want in. And he said, wait, no way. I will not baptize you into repentance until I first see it's a reality in your life. Everybody agree that's what he was saying? He said, we're not going to put you in the water and baptize you. We're going to baptize you in water into repentance. But only the in is the substance you're baptized in, but the into is an experience or reality that's already manifesting in your life to some measure. And he said, I, I am unwilling to baptize you in water into repentance until you're already repentant. Why is that key? Because this gives us insight into the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13. Matter of fact, uh, we're going to read from, yeah, from verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, all the members of the body, though many, are one body. So it is with Christ. For in one spirit... We are all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Let me read that again, verse 13. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Now, that is the formula of baptism all through Scripture. Whether you're looking at John's baptism in water into repentance, notice there's an in and an into with John. Christian baptism, Romans chapter 6, in that baptism, the in is the same. We're baptized in water, but the into is different into Christ's death. So we're building on John's baptism. John's baptism was merely a baptism of repentance. Christian baptism, we're being baptized into Christ's death. That's why I say it's a watery grave. But we understand as Christians, I don't baptize someone to make them repentant. I baptize them because they're repentant. And I don't baptize someone to put them into Christ. I baptize someone because they're already in Christ's death. Okay? So we are, we are sealing after the fact a reality that is already beginning to manifest in their life. Does everybody track with me? That's what water baptism is. And again, John eternally connected spirit baptism to water baptism. In, in a very real sense, like a parable. We can understand the physical, and as we study the physical, we get insight into the spiritual. So, spiritual, our baptism in the Spirit is not placing you in the body of Christ. It is baptizing you into the body of Christ after it's already a reality in your life. In keeping with the pattern. So this formula, all through Scripture, you're baptized in, for lack of a better term, a substance, that works with water, but when you get to the Spirit of God, you're baptized into something. You're baptized into water, or you're baptized into the third person of the Godhead. You are immersed in Him. What an amazing thought. I am enveloped in Him, and I come up, and He's still on me. I'm dripping with Him. 
man, I, I want that in my life. I want, I want to be refilled. And, and by the way, it, that is two terminologies that are used. There's the baptism in the Spirit and the filling of the Spirit. There's technically one baptism in the Spirit. There's an initial baptism, but there's many infillings. The, the, the first baptism is your first filling, but there's many infillings afterwards. And it, it conjures up the picture of, oh, I want to fill this cup with water. So rather than just sticking it under a faucet, you stick it into a sink and submerge it, and it comes up full. And it's wet on the outside, it's wet on the inside, it's full. It's dripping with the water. That is the picture. And so the reason I bring this up about the pattern or the formula of baptism all through Scripture, and if we're to understand it, we've got to understand there's always an in, in, and in, too. Because that gives us light to what this scripture actually means. Let me read it again. Verse 13. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. See, a lot of people will read this verse and say, oh, so that means when you got saved, the spirit came on you and baptized you into the spirit. Or into the body. That's not what this is saying. Our baptism into the body is a baptism of the Spirit. And baptism in Scripture is always something after the fact. Okay? Baptism and repentance, after the fact. You're repentant, so we'll baptize you into it. Baptized into Christ's death, you're, you're now a believer and you're in Christ's death, we're going to baptize you into it. And you, you are in the body of Christ because you are now a believer, we're going to baptize you into this thing. But the other thing, so... In reading the baptism of the Spirit through water baptism, we begin to get insight into this passage. Are you tracking with me? However, now we can go conversely and we can look through water baptism and get some insight into, or look through Spirit baptism and get some insight into water baptism. Because we know that when we're baptized in the Spirit, there is more than some symbolic act going on here. We receive the good of that thing. That thing is awakened within us. And that is why Paul mentions it in this context. What do I mean by that? Look at, let's read on. For the, so he says, verse 13, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. There's another metaphor that is used of this infilling of the spirit. The other time this is used in scripture is John chapter 7, where Jesus says, Come to me all who are thirsty, and drink, and out of your belly shall flow rivers of living water. And he says, and this, then John adds, this, he was speaking of the Spirit, which had not yet been given. And so, in the baptism of the Spirit, we are filled, we drink, and we're submerged. So it's like God takes you and throws you in the deep end. You submerge, you're drinking it in, and you come up dripping and with the power of God, with, with the power and presence of God. Now, listen to what he says in verse 14. I'm going somewhere here. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. And if the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? And if the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? 
But as it is, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them, as he chose. If, we were, if all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. So he's beginning to talk about, we are a member of a body. And interestingly enough, when he talks about it, he uses these pictures of sense, of smell, of hearing, of seeing, because with the baptism in the Holy Spirit, all of a sudden what happens is our gifts are awakened. And there are gifts that are imparted to the believer severally as he will, as how the King James puts it. And there's senses, there's hearing, there's seeing, there's, uh, there's understanding these different facets of ex, uh, uh, awareness of the spiritual realm that comes through the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Then he goes on. He says, verse 21, the eye can't say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor can the head say to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable, and those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow with great honor, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which are more... Where, which are more presentable parts do not require. And so what he's saying is he said some parts of the body are expressed publicly. There, there may be teaching gifts that they're more public or, or a preaching gift or a, maybe a, a, a prophet or, or so forth. They're, they're a more public gift. And then there's gifts of serving that may be behind the scenes. They're not seen. But God is saying, listen, I treat them with special honor because of the fact that there's how special they are, I hide them from view. And he's speaking of this metaphor of the Bible. Matter of fact, there's an entire industry dedicated to that type of body part. It's called the undergarment industry. And it's treated with special honor because of its importance. And that's what Paul's getting at. Now, uh, look at verse 27. Now you are part of the body, God individual members, and God appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles and gifts of healing, helping, administrating various kinds of tongues. So it's in the, and, and prior to this, he has, he has unpacked the, the nine spiritual gifts of the Spirit, the manifestation gifts. So here's my point. This teaching on this un, often overlooked facet of the baptism of the Holy Spirit is mentioned in the context of spiritual gifts. We often think of, if you've been in Pentecostal churches, if you've grown up there, Pentecostal or charismatic, depending on the stream, that most likely what was emphasized to you is that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And we look at that as for evangelism. And we look at it as an externally expressed gift. And there's validity to that. That's Acts chapter 2. And we need to pay attention to that. And that's important. But it's only one facet of the baptism in the Holy Spirit. There's this other facet that the holiness movement emphasized. So like I was saying, there was the, there was the holiness movement that there was a revival movement that predated the Pentecostal movement in the 1800s. And they began to say there must be more. It, as a matter of fact, it went back to the 1700s with the, the uh, Methodist movement, and they said there has to be more, and they began to cry out, and they got this revelation of a second blessing, something besides salvation, that there was salvation, and then there was empowerment. But they looked at it as empowerment for holiness, which is valid, but they didn't have this piece of empowerment for ministry. That's not what they emphasized. 
When the Pentecostal movement started at the turn of the last century, those two things merged, and so out of that came two different streams of Pentecostalism. One which believed, okay, when there, there's, the, the, uh, there's a third blessing. Matter of fact, if some t- a lot of times African-American Pentecostalism, like Kojic, uh, Church of God in Christ, You'll hear this within their churches at testimony time. They'll get up, and often they'll preface their testimony with this. I'm Dave, and I'm saved, sanctified, and baptized in the Holy Ghost. Now, that's not just cultural. That's theological. They believe in three express uh, experiences, that you're saved, you're sanctified, and you're baptized in the Spirit. Then there was also another stream of Pentecostalism that says, no, that sanctification is a process, not an event. And so I'm saved and baptized in the Holy Ghost, but the Holy Ghost enables me to live holy over time and I grow and mature. Which one of these models is right? I would say, uh uh-huh. There's truth to both of them. As your faith is, so be it unto you. It can be a process if you're willing to put up with that. But if you will lay hold of the horns of the altar and lock yourself in with God. I'm telling you by experience, God will meet you. I I had some holy times with the Lord the first five to seven years of my walk with him. And I would read some of these old writings and I knew I was desperate. I did not want to go back to where I was. And I knew how vulnerable I was. And there were a number of times I would close the door and I'd say, God, I am not getting off this floor until you touch me. And I would literally, if someone walked in, they'd have thought I was nuts. I would roll around on the floor, pound it, wailing, crying. And I said, God, I'm not leaving. You've got to touch me. And I'm telling you, he did. And usually when he did, I didn't feel like I won. I felt like I got pinned and I lost. But that's what needed to happen. And that was part of that holiness stream because they looked at it as striking at the root of our self-life. They understood, okay, I was delivered from sin in salvation, but I want to be delivered from the sinner in sanctification. Now, that is a process. We're maturing, but you can also jump way down the road. You get along with God and say, God, I'm not letting go. And as your faith is, so be it unto you. And so this stream that says there's two works of grace, there is... uh, you know, salvation, sanctification, and then sanct- I mean, uh, uh, baptism of the Holy Spirit. Sanctification is a process. That would be like the Assemblies of God, the Four Square, the Church of, uh, not Church of God, Church of God, uh, Cleveland, Tennessee would be over here. Kojic, you know, Church of God in Christ would be over here. And uh, there's truth to both of these. But suffice it to say this, that salvation and the baptism in the Holy Spirit are not the same thing. Let me, let me unpack it for you. Acts chapter 2. Do you believe that the disciples were saved before Acts chapter 2? How many of you believe that? They had received the Spirit in John chapter 20. Jesus was still walking the earth. And he breathed on them and said, receive the Spirit. And I, my personal opinion, theologically, they were born again at that moment. They were living in faith. They were believers. They would have still had heaven as their destination, but they were entering the new covenant because Jesus was, had died, buried, resurrected, and, and was getting ready to ascend and breathed on them, and they received the Spirit. They had a measure of the Spirit in salvation because it's the Spirit of God that's, that 
uh, is imparted to us and we are partakers of the divine nature and we are born again. But the fullness of the Spirit, and that's how Scripture speaks of it, being filled, the fullness of the Spirit, comes through the baptism of the Spirit. That's where you overflow, where you're filled. You got a measure in your cup, you're overflowing. You could look at it as when you are saved, you take a drink and the water's in you. When you're baptized in the Spirit, you're plunged in the pool and you're in the water. And that, that's, that theology, when Paul talks about being in the Spirit, that's how it starts. Get submerged in the Spirit. And so there's all these metaphors in this New Testament pneumatology, this New Testament understanding of the Spirit. And so we need, to, we need to understand this because if we don't, there's a lot of teaching out there that says, no, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13 says that by the, we're baptized in the Spirit into the body, so that must be when we're saved. And I can understand why they believe that. But if they are comparing that with the rest of Scripture and letting Scripture interpret Scripture, that is not what baptism means. Baptism is always after the fact. And so we're not baptized into the body of Christ, in the Spirit, into the body, until we're first in the body. And that comes at salvation. But our, our, it's activated through the baptism in the Holy Spirit. And all of a sudden these gifts begin to flow in our lives. And that's why this body of gifts in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and, and uh, 14 are not emphasized in churches that don't believe in the baptism of the Holy Spirit as, a, as an experience. They'll emphasize some of Ephesians 4, three of the four, five. They'll emphasize Romans 12. And they may even take some of the, the uh, ones in Acts, I mean, 1 Corinthians 12, and they'll say tongues. Oh, that's the ability to, to, to communicate to other cultures. And prophecy, well, that's, a, that's the ability to preach with authority. Word of knowledge, that's just, that's God helping you be really, you know, being wise for the moment and counseling people. And they, they take the super out of the natu- supernatural and make it natural with God, God coming along and enhancing your ability, your natural abilities. But when you believe, when you see in Scripture that with the baptism of the Holy Spirit came that impartation for the gifts of the Spirit to begin to flow in us, it becomes a powerful thing. And we need to understand. I wish we had a couple more hours. We need to really take like three Wednesday nights and really take a deep dive on this because it's so important that we have an accurate theology of the Spirit. You have this holiness movement interpretation. You have the two Pentecostal versions, the three works of grace or the two works of grace, and all of those are great, and there's, there's truth in all of that, but an unmined treasure trove is in this verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, because what he is telling you is you will not know your place in the body until you have been baptized in the Spirit. And you come up and all of a sudden you begin to function. You may have been a big old ear walking around and didn't even know it. You may have been a big old eyeball walking around and didn't even know it. You may have been a big nose walking around and didn't know it. But when you are submerged in Him, those gifts 
are activated. We've talked about this before. The Father gave us the Romans 12 gifts. Jesus gave us the Ephesians 4 gifts. But it's by the Spirit that the 1 Corinthians 12 miraculous gifts are activated. And they're activated in the submersion into his person. And all of a sudden, we're online. Our heart's beating and we, we come online and all of a sudden we're tracking. It's, and then we learn to walk in the Spirit. Paul, Paul says it this way. We keep in step with the Spirit. It's learning to keep in step with Him. We don't grieve Him on the one hand or quench Him on the other. We learn to walk and we learn to live in the Spirit. And it all comes out of this initial experience of the Spirit. So, I hope I haven't confused you more than ever this morning. I really, we really do need to take some, we'll, we'll take some time here, sometime this year, and we'll block, Laura, remind me of this, we're going to block out three to four weeks on a Wednesday night and really go deep into a, a, a pneumatology, or the, the, the understanding of the baptism of the Spirit and how it's connected to the, 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 the life of the Christian. Uh, because it is the new covenant. The intertestamental people were waiting for the inauguration of the age to come. And they knew it was going to be marked by the outpouring of the Spirit. And that's why Peter said at the day of Pentecost, this is that which was spoken of by the prophet Joel. In the last days I will pour out of my Spirit. And what Peter was saying is the last days begin today because he came. The Spirit has arrived. And so the crashing in of the kingdom began at Pentecost. And we're all to be empowered. It's consummated by the Messiah returning. But it began and it, it increases with the outpouring of the Spirit and a body of people walking in the Spirit. And Spirit-filled Christians... To be a Lone Ranger Spirit-filled Christian is an oxymoron. It, you cannot be a Spirit-filled Lone Ranger because he baptizes you into the Spirit, but in that he baptizes you into the body. And only then, when we're all functioning in our gifts and flowing with him, then we grow up into him who is the head. And we become the force to be reckoned with that he intended for us to be on planet earth. So, if you have not been baptized in the Holy Spirit, I want to lay some more groundwork next week. And then we're going to lay hands on people probably next week. Or we might have to do it during the baptism. But if you've not been baptized in the Spirit, man, lean into this thing this week. We're, we're entering into our last week of the fast. And so begin to ask the Lord, God, I want, I want to know. I want, I want you to come upon me. I want to be saturated with your power. I'm telling you in the kindest way I can, this is not to berate you. It's not to beat up on you. It's that, you know, some people say, well, you're, you're saying that you're a better Christian because you're, no, it's not about that. It's about saying, God, we want everything that you have for us. And if you don't have it, by all means, get it. And God is willing to pour it out on you. Jesus the ascended Jesus is the baptizer in the Holy Spirit. And he longs to do so. And it will change your life. 
The power of the Lord will come upon you and it will cause you to be more aware of your place in the body of Christ. Your gifts will begin to manifest and we will train you how to use those gifts. This is a, a neglected element of the baptism of the Holy Spirit that we need to get, a, get hold of. Because you will never be all you're called to be alone. You can't. You can never walk in the fullness of Christ. We talk about the measure of the gift of the Spirit and the, and the fullness of Christ. The same language is used of Jesus. You have the measure of the gift of Christ and you have the fullness of Christ. And you know what those are connected to? Your measure of the gift of Christ is your individual portion that you carry. The fullness of Christ is the body. Isn't it interesting that when we're baptized in the Spirit, in the fullness of the Spirit, we're baptized into the body. The fullness of the Spirit is in the body. The fullness of Christ is in the body. And if you want it all, you need to be baptized in the Spirit into the body. If you've not been baptized in water, listen. If for no other reason, do it out of obedience to Jesus. We're going we're gonna to have a celebration in two weeks. And we're going to baptize everybody that has not been baptized that is willing to do so. And maybe even a few that are unwilling. We start, might start grabbing people. I'm just kidding. It, uh, but I want to encourage you. This is important. And just as the Spirit of God, when we're baptized into him, all of a sudden we're aware of our place in the body. So it's not just a, a, a formality. Something is activated. I'm telling you, the same is true in water baptism. When you go down in that water, things are activated. You begin to lay that old man, leave him behind, and come up in newness of life and let the power of God come upon you. Amen? Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to help more people hear this message, you can get the word out by subscribing and sharing it on social media. If you'd like to support the ministries of Heartland Church, you can do so at heartlandchurchonline.com give.